You're listening to the Silicon Valley Podcast. On today's show, we sit down with Chris Kane, who is the CEO and founder of Check. Chris is passionate about startups, sports, fintech, specifically payments, and financial literacy. He believes that you can get anywhere you want in this world as long as you work your butt off and never stop learning. Favorite quote of his by Steve Jobs, everything around you that you call life was made up by people that are no smarter than you. You can influence it. You can change it. On today's show, we talk about what is fintech and what roles does financial literacy play in the sports world? What is the step-by-step payment process system and how can startups collaborate with one another to succeed? This and much more on today's episode of the Silicon Valley Podcast. All right, let's start the show. Enjoy. Welcome to the Silicon Valley Podcast with your host, Sean Flynn, who interviews famous entrepreneurs, venture capitalists, and leaders in tech. Learn their secrets and see tomorrow's world today. All right, I'm here with the founder of Check, Chris Kane. Now, I'm super excited for today's episode. Chris was introduced to me by Michael Delavano, who is figurehead in the SaaS community. I've been on his podcast. We formed a event room and clubhouse together. I mean, the guy knows everyone. Check him out. But with that, Chris, can you tell us a little bit about your company, a little about your career up until this point? Absolutely. I started off in the hedge fund space out of college and quickly moved on to Startup Land, as I uh, fondly like to call it. Launched my first company, jumped headfirst into the industry. And in 2019, I launched my second company, which is Check, to what I'm working on today. And so, what Check does is we help organizations in sports, so youth, collegiate, pro, and esports, as well as nonprofits, disperse funds more effectively and efficiently through fully controllable, both physical and virtual debit cards. Whoa, that, that sounds impressive. But I mean, for me, I know nothing about the payment process. Can you kind of talk me through step by step who's involved? What do they do? How the payment world works is not very well known, especially like the nitty gritty of it. You know, to take it from our vantage point as core issuer, that's where we're, we're fintech at our core and we issue cards. So really to be able to issue cards, you need four pillars. So the first pillar, which what we are, is a program manager. And so we oversee everything. We have all the direct contracts, all this kind of stuff. And then the second piece is what's called a processor. And so think of the processor like the circulatory system between the other pillars. And now you have the issuing bank. So the issuing bank is the one that actually takes custody of the funds and is the FDIC regulated institution in order to be able to do that. So like for us, when someone deposits 50 grand in order to disperse with check, that's not being held in check's bank account. That's being held with our issuing bank. We have the master account and sub virtual accounts are created for each new client. So each client actually has a virtual account with the issuing bank. The other pillar is the network. So network, people know these names, MasterCard, Visa, Discover, Amex. They provide that last mile to actually use the card out of the millions of merchants around the world. The fifth pillar, which is you know, a little kind of outside the scope, but is very important for physical cards, is the fulfillment center. And so the fulfillment center is the one that actually prints the designs on the cards. So when you see, oh, get Darth Vader on your card, and you're like, yeah. With that, they actually print it. And when you card, you'll see it come in that white envelope that's super plain. You're like, why are they sending me this plain white envelope? I almost just threw it out. 
that's because no one can really know there's a card in there. So it's protected and all this kind of stuff. So Fulfillment Center handles all of that side. And this whole system wraps up into being able to issue uh, cards for consumers for various purposes or, or corporations and stuff. Okay. So this whole process sounds pretty complex. Pretty amazing, actually. Why are there so many players involved? Why isn't it just one player, the whole thing? I, I'm not getting it. You said it's quite complicated. And there's different regulatory hurdles and burdens to get over. So in a perfect world, you know, for check, I mean, in ideal world, that's not reality. Would we love to be our own processor? Love to be a bank ourselves to do it. But just the way this industry has evolved just became a little siloed, really. And now we're seeing, you know, new companies pop up and trying to reduce these frictions, be able to do it more streamlined so that it doesn't cost $10 million as it did 10 years ago to stand something like this up, that you can actually start pushing innovation. And a lot of this innovation actually being pushed by the banks. So you know the legacy banks, and there's actually not that many issuing banks. And that's also a good differentiator is there's actually acquiring and issuing banks. So issuing banks are far less in overall amount that exist. But these banks have finally realized with the emergence of fintech over the past you know, decade or so that they can't keep up with the evolution of technology. With the amount of money they have in R&D, they're like, it's not worth it for us to invest to you know, develop these technologies ourselves. So instead of trying to clash and go head to head with the fintechs, let's work with them. Let's have a synergistic relationship where they can provide us with all these new innovative technologies. And then we'll partner with them to give them our legacy banking rails, which have been around for a long time, but are needed from a regulatory perspective and to make everything actually flow where all the, all the right people are protected, nothing sketchy is going on. You know, just the way it evolved, it become, just became a little siloed and fractured uh, in the way it is, but it's moving to a more complete vantage point. I probably should have asked this at the very beginning. Can you kind of define what fintech is for some of our less tech savvy listeners or people that aren't familiar with the fintech space? And could you also maybe talk about some of the kind of the advancements in that space just in general? That can mean a million different things. Fintech when it first came around, you would think, okay, investment banking innovations, trading innovations, things that are very what people think of finance. They think of you know the stock market, the bonds, commodities, all this stuff. That's where fintech really started, but now has broadened to you know subsections of like insure tech, which is really they call it insure tech. They don't really lump it in fintech anymore. But then you have personal finance things, financial literacy. You have Robinhood is, is a fintech. Then you have things like Betterment. All these different things are open to fintech. And now you get payments that are lumped into fintech and rightly so as well. The term has really broadened. And I mean, a lot of, particularly in payment side of things of what we're seeing is a lot of innovation in vertical specific fintech. And I mean, that's, that's really where check plays is that there are very concise sounds the right word, but very specific needs in different verticals that are very hard to address in a kind of rule of thumb, big, just one big swipe kind of thing. So that's where fintech is now becoming very catered and very specific to uh, certain clientele, certain verticals, which I, you know, I think is very exciting. Now in this fintech space, is it something that is getting a lot of 
adoption, getting a lot of excitement from the more traditional players? Or are they pushing back and saying, hey, we don't want innovation here. We're putting up all these barriers. You know, we don't want, you know, I don't want to say your kind, but your kind entering yeah. our space. <laughs> it used to be like that. But now it's much more accepted that they need the fintechs because it's, it's a cost-benefit analysis in their minds that they look and say, we could try and build this in-house. The amount of opportunity cost, the amount of effort, money, and time to get this done to maybe see if it works isn't worth it to them. So from their vantage point, and this is just the classic example of why big companies acquire startups, is that they're like, well, let these startups figure out where the product market fit is, figure out the innovation, figure all this stuff out, prove it, and then we'll come in and buy them because we got the money, but we don't want to take the risks. And then there's, there's human psychology in this kind of stuff of why they don't at like executive levels. But it's really just about, we proved it out and they're like, okay, here's a bunch of money. Thank you. And, we're, and the founders were like, cool, exit, great. They're just like, now we got the innovation. We're good. But just to piggyback off my own point there, <laughs> um, Within corporate structure, what's different from a founder perspective is founders tend to be the visionaries. And you look at the quintessential example of Apple and Steve Jobs, visionary, one of the best of our time. And then you know Tim Cook, as good as he is, he wasn't the founder. He climbed the ladder, got to be the CEO. So these guys have a different perspective. They have more to lose. And so they're not trying to push innovation internally as much. Because if they screw up one time, they could be canned and it's over for them. So it's a way safer bet to say, hey, we're just going to buy this company that is already proved out and then we'll just make money off of it for a variety of reasons. Or maybe you want their people, maybe you want their tech, whatever they're acquiring the company for. But it all just comes back to is that CEOs have climbed the ladder. They just got too much to lose and they don't want to do it internally. That reminds me of that CEO joke, the advice one CEO gives to another on their first day. The CEO goes to the other one. He's like, do you have any advice for me? He's like, write three letters and put them in your drawer. He's like, okay, what do I put in the letters? He goes, the first letter, when something goes bad, you give that to the board and the letter says, it was all my predecessor's fault. You know, that, that's <laughs> what happened. He's like, okay. And the second letter, the second letter is, sorry, this is my fault. I'll fix it by next quarter. Mm -hmm. And then the third letter is the resignation letter. <laughs> yep. <laughs> so it sounds like the startups, the fintech are getting more exposure, getting more acceptance, getting more welcome into kind of the more traditional bank. And so with that, what have been some of the biggest challenges you have faced while building your company in such a specialized space like payments? I would say the first biggest challenge is early on where you're trying to stand up a fintech solution and can cost a lot of money. So it's being nimble, agile, and doing things very intelligently where you can get where you need to go without completely diminishing all your cash flow. And so it's as you start to stand that up, now it becomes finding that product market fit. In specific to check, like in our industry, like you get corporate expense management. Everyone's in that. But we took a different perspective and we're like, hey, where's the blue ocean? Right? Where what is being ignored or ignored or unnoticed by the incumbents? And so that's where in line with our expertise and relationships and former athletes in sports and nonprofits, that's where we settle. But it's when you're in vertical-specific fintech, it's hard to find where you really need to play and where the, the needs are unmet, but you have an unfair advantage to meet those needs. That's the first challenge. But then the other challenge is this technology can be very expensive to build. 
It's not like a typical SaaS platform where you're building a tool, someone uses it. You know, there's regulatory hurdles, all this type of padding, all your stuff, getting through, you know, pretty typical startup stuff. It can be quite challenged, you know, specifically in fintech. Well, so I got to push you even further there with the whole challenge thing, because you're not only in fintech, your solution actually crosses over to the sports tech arena as well. Now, can you talk about what was the idea behind that work in sports tech and fintech? Kind of what have those conversations been like for customers and investors? Just that in general. Take the investor side first. First started launching our seed round. We found a bit of a dichotomy or a break in talking to sports tech investors versus fintech investors. So while our vertical was very much intertwined in sports tech, it speaks to some of those investors, they didn't have the background in finance. So we would be explaining interchange, what interchange is to them, and they wouldn't feel comfortable in committing any investment because they didn't really understand one of the core ways we make money. And then the fintech investors, they would 100% understand our whole model, what we're doing, how it works, but they would struggle to understand sports because sports is a very closed door industry. It's very hard to break into. A lot of people don't understand the problems that exist in sports without being in it. And a lot of people think they understand sports in the sports industry, but they understand it as a fan, not as the operator. And it's very, very different on the inside from the outside. An easy example is NFL players. Up until pretty recently, they were paid on roughly a 17-week cycle. So these guys got 17 checks without the playoffs, didn't get paid for the rest of the year from the NFL, or their team rather. Now it's moving to around 34 weeks. So they're getting more of a stretch of their money. But this was around the financial literacy side, where these guys would try to keep up with the Joneses because they're NFL player. They're big time now. Buy all the things. People start knocking on their doors. Old friends, family. Hey, can I get this? Can I get that? Can I have that handout? And all of a sudden, since they're only being paid 17 weeks out of the year, around this time of year rolls around, May, June, and they're like, oh, I can't afford you know X, Y, and Z. That's what the NFL has now come and stepped in and says, hey, we're going to spread out your payments. You don't just get game checks anymore. And so that's really good for these players in understanding, hey, you know, you're not just dependent on this small segment of the year to be paid. Going back, there's not a lot of movement, at least in my experience, in between traditional corporate or fintech and sports tech. It's just not the way people tend to move across things. So that's one of the reasons that it's been an interesting exercise in playing at the intersection of these spaces. But that's also been a really good benefit to us. It's very untapped. And people don't quite understand that how interconnected sports and fintech or finance and nonprofits, all these actually are quite intertwined into a very real degree. It's been a journey, but it's been a fun one. Okay. I had no idea about that whole check payment thing with NFL players. For some reason, in my mind, it was they sign a contract, here's a check, and then that's it. I didn't know it was split in between games. I didn't know it was for the season. That's crazy. I'd never even thought about any of that stuff, but I could definitely see if your mindset is get paid, spend. After that last check, three months later, you're like, wait. (laughs) And imagine, right? Imagine being a college kid. Right. And say you're not a hot, uh, first round draft pick. Say you're like a mid fourth, fifth round draft pick. I mean, the league minimum saying they make the team, right? Just say they may, assume they make the team. This year, it's around 600,000. I mean, don't quote me on that, but pretty close to 600,000. You're a college kid. You've never seen real money in your life at 600,000. 
That's a lot of money for a 21, 22-year-old to start making. So now they get all this money. What do you do with it? And, they, and if they don't have that financial literacy education to say, don't spend money as soon as you get it. There are so many ways to use money as a tool to continue to grow wealth for yourself. And you know, kind of a long-term running joke you know, in the sports world is the NFL, what it really stands for is not for long. When I was a kid, I had aspiring dreams of playing in the NFL and all that kind of stuff and quarterback and athletic career really ended up in mixed martial arts, trained and fought while I was in my mid-20s. But the financial literacy behind things that these guys helping them understand that money is a tool. That's all it is. It's a tool and it can work for you as well. And it's just helping these guys understand that to build wealth and build a better life. Because if they're out in three years, which you know that's a lot of guys, they get a three-year stint and they're done. But if it's done right with the right financial knowledge, they will set themselves up. They'll be 25, 26 and will set themselves up for the rest of their lives. I mean, not monetarily, but they have a jump start on everyone else in their age group with an NFL experience on their resume. That's a powerful thing now to go back into the working world, to finish your degree if you need. You have the rest of your life ahead of you. And you got a big you know, stamp of approval on, on yourself by being a former pro player. That is true. If you ever hear someone that used to be a pro athlete, immediately you want to be around that person. You yes. want to find out more. Yep. That's a huge resume builder there. Even if it was like, yeah, I was there for one season. <laughs> mm-hmm. There's a lot of things I'd like to ask based on what you just said. One, you talked about sports, fintech, and nonprofits. So I'm kind of curious a little bit more information about how all those three relate. And at the same time, I also want to go back to dive a little bit deeper into your conversations with some of the investors, kind of what those conversations have been like. So I'm giving you a softball here. I'm letting you, yeah. you know, pick what you want. <laughs> you know, the intersection between sports, fintech, nonprofits. So, you know, just as an easy example, um, a lot of the, you know, players, their mindset has switched where they're understanding that it, it is not for long and how to start building that. So it's we're really improving in that in that section. And you get guys like Pat Mahomes, biggest name in football right now, has come out and said that I'm trying to build an empire a business empire. And you know, these kind of guys are leading the charge in ways to really build wealth, that fintech, that finance. Because you build wealth through investing. Investing looks different in a variety of different ways. There's many different ways to invest. But they're very interested in this now. And they understand the value of this. This isn't just some old stuffy thing people do on Wall Street anymore. It can be very exciting and innovative. And you know, it's becoming more inclusive. You know, so it's starting to move in that direction. For the intersection of uh, nonprofits and sports, another easy example: you have teams, organizations with their nonprofit arm. You have athlete-driven nonprofits. So most professional athletes have their own nonprofit, and then you have nonprofits like Every Kid Sports, and they subsidize youth sport registration fees for low-income families. And so you have all nonprofits going into sports to help teach kids the lifelong benefits of playing sport and engaging in sport. All these type of things just start rolling together where sports is so much money in it and they love to give back. And the nonprofits want to get more kids into sport because of just the benefits of playing sport and how they help you grow and develop as a young child. All these different types of things just become a virtuous cycle. And it goes much deeper. Yeah, they are, are quite, quite intertwined industries. 
talk a little bit more about your investor talk? Is that okay? Or, or? Yes, 100%. Sorry. I, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's a bunch of questions there at one time, you know? <laughs> guess I'm curious about how are you vetting the investors that you're going to? Because you're not fintech investors only. You're not sports tech. You have to kind of pivot that line, but at the same time, to save your time, you have to vet these investors before the meetings. How are you going about doing that? 100%. You know, there's always the pre-exercises you do, probably telling people stuff they already know with this, you know, first comment, but you know, just going on LinkedIn, looking at the websites, looking at the bios, making sure that whether for us it's on the sports tech, fintech side, or maybe it's a high net worth angel or a family office. And I'll go into that as well. You know, making sure that they're falling in between one of our two buckets for expansion and take the sports tech side, or they have relevant experience, contacts, expertise, all that kind of stuff. So take the sports tech side. We would always entertain money from a firm that has deep sports connections and can help us expand and make those introductions, help us grow in the sports side from a customer acquisition perspective. But then we also want to be able to get investment from a fintech VC who understands payments specifically. Fintech firm is just like, yeah, we love Robinhood, Acorns, all this kind of stuff. It's like, yeah, it's fintech, but it's a loaded term. It's very broad. But payments expertise is, is quite rare. Doing that is now our core abilities of what we do, which they can help with. You know, the right introductions to different partners, cha- you know, channel partners, and different institutions that we need to work with help in understanding how to optimize our operations around how our core issuing platform is working new innovations that are coming out. You know, there's the client side, and then there's how we actually run core operating model side. And then family offices, right? And so we've, you know, we've had a, you know, some good success with family offices because a lot of family offices, you know, what people don't know is sometimes NFL team owners have their own family office, right? These people are more than you would think involved in the sports game. And, you know, whether they're investing in Building golf courses, building stadiums, all these different things. So they have, you know, a wide breadth of investment, but there's a lot of money in sports and they know it. And, you know, one of the things we do and I always say is follow the money, right? Just follow the money. There's no better data than transactional data and monetary data because people can tell you whatever you want. They can say things, say how they feel, but what they spend their money on or what they invest in is what they actually think and believe in. That's how we always look at it. Not just an investor perspective, who we would want to work with, but from a lot of other perspectives. Uh, I don't know if you or any of your listeners have seen the documentary on Netflix uh, called Seaspiracy. It's a very interesting documentary. So you know, all around, you know, fishing and and how it's you know really you know kind of killing the o- overfishing is killing the oceans. Resulting uh, by killing, I think they were saying the phytoplankton because they eat fish feces and stuff like that. So they're, the fish are being caught more by bycatch and you know, all this kind of stuff. But how this guy figured it out, you know, for the most part, was he started following the money. And as I was watching this, I was like, duh, because this is what I do every single day. When you flip your mentality to understanding that this, don't believe what people say, believe what they do. That's when you'll really start to uncover what the actions of people are and what actually matters to them. I think right there, I probably got five quotes I could pull for this episode. (laughs) (laughs) You're in sports. Everything is a team effort. 
I'm wondering also, as a startup founder, do you work with other startups? Is there a team atmosphere there where you guys collaborate, you know, help each other out to get to the next round? Is that something that goes on in the world of startups or not? A hundred percent. Obviously, you have your competition, just like on a sports field. My favorite quotes, Kenny Chesney, it's a nameless, faceless opponent. And that's how we look at our competitors, right? We're going to, we go out and we're going to give it 110% and we're not going to let up, right? We'll go up by 50 and we'll keep on scoring. It doesn't matter. But with, you know, startups that there's synergies with, that's where we always, always look to how can we help each other? How can we create a strategic partnership and create that win-win relationship with each other to help each other grow? And that can look in a lot of different senses, whether it's sharing VC introductions, where say one startup's at a bit of a later stage than the other. I had you know, one conversation, but they want series A. But I, you know, I, I have a good relationship with the founder. I'm like, oh, you need to talk to them. That's perfect for you guys and your theses. So then there's also the channel partner side, where a couple of good examples, we do fan saves. So it's a company up in Canada. So we, you know, they're in the sports world. So we always go back and forth with, okay, that would be good for you. This would be good for you. And then, you know, one of our main partners is Jed Collins. So he's a former NFL player, the Saints, and you know, how, now he focuses a lot on financial literacy. So teaching financial literacy to college athletes, pro athletes, NFL, MLB, we go after the same clientele. So we'll just pass intros back to each other, back and forth all the time. And so it's finding the best way to work with each other when it makes sense, because you want to build up all your network and all your friends in this space, because it, it really is a team effort. And as long as you're not directly competitive, it's, it's almost in my, in my sense, it's why not? Even if you, like, they can't help you right now, but you like them and you believe in what they are doing and you can help them just do it anyway. Because I know for me and in my journey thus far that I have experienced what I call an angel is what I term it. Not an angel investor, but somebody that comes along and makes one introduction that changes the trajectory of your company. And so that's happened to me. And so I look as that any opportunity that I could have to be an angel to somebody else I'm going to take it because I know how it feels upon the receiving end and I want to pay it forward. And just the, my values and how you know, I run my life and run the company, it is so important to pay it forward. And even if you're so far ahead, is to reach your hand back down and pull up the next guy or gal to help them on their journey. Because like I said, it, it really is a team effort in this space. And we all know how hard it is and how much blood, sweat, and tears we put into our companies. So if you can help, help. If you don't get anything monetary in return, it's just about giving. I'm going to put you on the spot right now. Hit me so, with it. All right. All right. Question for you. January 1st, 2023, college players are going to be able to benefit from their name, image, likeness, the nil laws. How is this going to impact this legislation? I think it is quite long overdue. So there's what people initially think of NIL as. You have, you think of a Trevor Lawrence. There always will be a next Trevor Lawrence all the time. These guys will get a boatload of money thrown at them. They will be millionaires before they even leave college. And that's what everyone from the outside is like, yeah, NIL, these guys are going to make a lot of money. But that's not it. What NIL does is it 
it more so evens the playing field for all the other, what, 500,000 collegiate athletes we have at all levels. So you think about a D3 cross player. This person's not getting notoriety, right? Most likely they're not getting a sponsorship uh, to post on social media. No. But you know what they can do now? They can go back to their hometown that they came from. You know, they might be the only person from that high school's athletics department that got a collegiate scholarship to play. But all those other kids in that town, they're looking up to that person. And what they can do is they can go back home now and run a camp in the summer and with association of their name and their university and start making money on that. And so now you're developing a different type of skill set in these athletes, which are often very, very busy in college. These people are students and athletes at the same time. And so giving them the ability to make money on this stuff in the downtime over the summer or when their off season is, is just only going to help them develop more as people and help them monetize on what's rightly theirs. The university has been monetizing on their backs for, for decades now. It's their name. It's their performance on the field. So why not? Why shouldn't they be able to go and monetize outside of it? All right. Now I want to ask you some questions as a CEO, founder of a company, share some of your wisdom. Yeah. On this journey that you've taken so far, what's a lesson that you've learned, something that surprised you, something you can pass on, some knowledge you can share? You know, everyone wants to give advice around, you know, how to grow your business, how to do this, how to do that, how to be a big rock star. But that doesn't happen unless you take care of you and your own mental health and your own well-being. Because the sad fact is being a founder is very, very lonely, right? You, you're going to feel alienated from your friends, from your family. Like A lot of people aren't going to know what you deal with on a daily basis and how it affects you. But one, finding that group of people that know what your experience is like and being able to commiserate with them and help, you, and help each other out. But then it's also understanding that this is a roller coaster and that when you first start, and I did this when I first started, is that when something good happens, you're going to get so high. like You're going to go to the roof, but you can't let yourself get that high because you're going to fall down. And when something bad happens, you cannot let yourself get too low because you'll get too low and you'll get unproductive. And this swing will start to take its toll over time. And you want to be productive. You want to get to where you're going. That's why you started this journey. To become more even-keeled and control or do your best to not get too high when something goes good and not get too low when something goes bad. It's when something goes bad, you know, this goes back to sports where you throw an interception. All right, next play. What's next? Right? It happened, it's done. Let's move on and let's learn from it. Other than that, it's a good skill to develop because everyone has goals of being a big time CEO with, you know, big company, a lot of employees. But if you haven't developed the skill to be even in good times and bad, like a good leader should, that's when if something bad happens in the company and you have 100 employees and you're in your office, parts of your company are looking in and you're freaking out, you're fuming, you're throwing a fit, that's going to affect your employees. They're going to internalize that and now respond and, and be afraid, not of you, but of what's going on. You're going to create uncertainty. They will, whether they realize it or not, start mimicking your motion of how you treat what's going on. So if you're way too high, 
when something good happens, they might get way too high when some, they might think it's way better than something actually is. And the same thing when you get too low, like I was saying. So if you're even and you give the praise to your team when something good happens and you take the fault when something bad happens, that's when you can really start to hedge lack of productivity because it, it really does start with you and take it back to sports is like, you know, the quarterback, when something goes good, they get the praise, right? You may not have anything to do with them. You still get the praise, sure. But they take the fault when something bad happens, even if it had nothing to do with them because they're the leader. And then one of my, my favorite things that actually happened this season with Tom Brady, I identify a lot with this uh, and I laughed a good bit when I heard it. So after they won the NFC championship, I forget the players' names, but they were on the field celebrating. And you know, I, I saw us on ESPN. I think he's one of the linebackers. He saw one of his teammates crying celebration after they won. And he saw Tom Brady walk up to him and say, what are you crying for? We still got one more game to play. And so this guy, he says, I saw that now. I was just like, you know, oh, why are my eyes dry? And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. What are you guys talking about? Yeah, I got, we got one more game to play. <laughs> oh, wow. For our listeners out there, if anyone wants to hear a, a great episode interview we've done, I think it's episode 82 with Chucky Orbita, who was actually Chris's introduction. Chris was the angel in that. Yeah. Back there earlier. <laughs> uh, Chucky's a great guy. I love what he's doing. Oh, man, that, that interview was impactful. That was an amazing yeah. interview. Okay, now I got to hear another story before we're about time wrapping it up. But give me an instance where you had a setback, a setback on this path, this career that you're on right now, where you're able to navigate it, some solution you came up with, some wisdom you could pass on. One of the ones I've learned the most from was when teammate has left. And so completely amicable for their own reasons. But it's about when a teammate has to leave, how that slack is picked up. You're used to offboarding a certain degree of responsibility to them. But now as the CEO, you have to now reassume that responsibility until you can get someone else in to now take it away from you again. So it's really about, can you step up to the plate when something happens? If you're used to working 10 hours a day, you know what? You might have to work 14 now. It sucks. But again, this is your company. It really is on your shoulders. No matter what, at the end of the day, everything is your responsibility. Even if it is assigned to someone else, it is your responsibility. What kind of I learned from that? Back when I was, you know, athletic days, I always knew that my practice had set me up to perform, that I didn't practice until I got it right. I practiced until I couldn't get it wrong. And so with that, it was a couple years where I didn't have to get to that next gear. And it was like eternal questioning of, is it there? Can I still actually do it? And then when this happened, it was out of the frying pan into the fire. And I stepped back up. That gear switched back over. And I was able to do it. I was able to push to 14, 15 hour days again. And just be like, you know what? I got to do what I have to do is what it is. This is my company. And we've strongly come out on on the other side of it. The lesson I would say to kind of summarize with it is you may not feel capable of doing things, but as long as you intently practice and practice can be a little loose in startup world, but by practice, I mean, 
when you're working, so you're working eight, 10 hour day, whatever you're doing, but you have to make, make sure you're not taking it easy on yourself, right? Give yourself breaks, work out, exercise, take care of yourself. You know, don't let yourself feel sorry for yourself and be, I just feel bad. So I'm going to go watch TV for two hours. No, push through, get it done. And when you'll find is when crap hits the fan um, <laughs> that you'll have the practice to push through the hardest times. You'll be used to it. And then you'll be very surprised with yourself of how far you actually can push. All right. And Chris, with that, one last question and then wrapping it up. Tell us about what Check's going to do in the next year, three years. Tell us about the future. And then after that, what's the best way for people to find out more information about you, your company, connect with you, and all that good jazz? Man, we are in growth mode right now. From here, it's really just about continuing to develop our technology, innovating on what we already have, continuing to build our team, and now onboarding all of the clients that we've had in the backlog for some time now. We're lucky in the situation where client acquisition is not an issue for us. Cliche to say, but it's about that hard work, that preparation, creating the right channel partners, creating the right vehicles to get where you want with a lot of intent. It doesn't just happen. It doesn't fall in your lap. Next three years, we're really looking to grow rapidly. Very, very strong projections, strong revenue. So I know uh, it's cliche to say, but in three years, pretty confident we'll be uh, crossing a billion dollar valuation just because what we have, what we're doing, verticals we're focused on, relationships, expertise, and where we want to go. It's going to be an exciting, it has been an exciting time already, and it will continue to be an exciting time in the future. So I'm super pumped. Website, uh, checkspend.com is the website. Feel free to reach out to me on LinkedIn, Chris Kane on LinkedIn. Social media, everything is at checkspend. And we also uh, have our podcast, Sports Economy, where we follow the money in, around, in, in and around sports and interview some of the best and brightest in sports, business, and philanthropy. Filming that, releasing it every week. And it's just up and up from here, my friend. All right. Fantastic. We're going to have all those links in the show notes. So check it out on the Silicon Valley podcast.com. With that, my name is Sean Flynn. If uh, hopefully when Chris's company grows, I can help with the acquisition or, or the merger of that. If any company out there is looking for an investment banker to help them, please let me know. Uh, email me sf at globalcapitalmarkets.com. But with that, I want to say, Chris, Thank you for your time today on the Silicon Valley podcast. This was a great episode. I learned a lot about many different industries. And I look to have you back on the show again, especially to hear about all the fantastic growth ahead. All right. Thanks, Sean. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Silicon Valley podcast. To access our resources, visit us at the siliconvalleypodcast.com and follow our host on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at Sean Flynn SV. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional.